Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Antioch, good morning, and welcome to week nine of our lockdown liturgy. For the season of Easter, we're in a series called Jesus Speaks, the Red Letters After Resurrection. And we're looking at stories of people who had encounters with Jesus after he had risen from the dead, and even after he had ascended into heaven. Today, we will be in the book of Acts, chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible. Uh, If you remember last week in our conversation with Pastor Alex Mutagubia, we looked at the red letters in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is part of what's called the Great Commission, which is Jesus' set of instructions for his disciples to spread the good news about him to the whole world. So Jesus calls his followers to a vocation of bearing witness to this new reality called the kingdom of God. This is the shared mission or the co-mission of the church. But Jesus in Acts 1.8 here isn't just giving a command, he's actually making a promise. He doesn't say his disciples might receive the Holy Spirit or they could be his witnesses in the world. He says, you will, twice in this verse. In English, we'd call this a future tense declarative statement. It's not conditional, it's not tentative, it is declarative. This is what's going to happen. And what's interesting about this declarative statement is that it basically serves as a narrative outline for the rest of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 tells us what's going to happen in the following chapters of the story. It should probably have a spoiler alert, but it doesn't. Jesus says that his disciples will receive the power of his spirit and they will be his witnesses. First in Jerusalem, the city they live in, and then in Judea and Samaria, the greater region surrounding them, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what happens. This is how the book of Acts works. You could outline it like this. Acts chapter 1 through chapter 7, you have the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8 through chapter 10, the gospel begins to spread to to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 11 through 28, the rest of the book, the gospel spreads all the way to Rome, which is the seat of the empire, the center of the world, and the gateway to the ends of the earth. And what's crazy is that eventually the good news of Jesus makes it all the way to a remote town in the high desert of central Oregon. Sometimes as Americans, we tend to think that the ends of the earth is somewhere like Zimbabwe or Papua New Guinea. But the truth is that we're part of a movement that started in Jerusalem, Israel, 2,020 years ago. Bend, Oregon is the ends of the earth. And we're the recipients of Jesus' promise way before we're participants in it. 
So that's how the book of Acts begins, and that's how the story goes. The next letters, red letters we find, are in the book of Acts chapter 9. So it's been about three and a half years since Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And in the meantime, he's given his spirit to the church, and this little ragtag group of disciples has been growing and multiplying throughout Judea and Samaria. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's not trying to start a regional religion. He's on a mission to reinvent the entire world. And he starts by appearing to a young Jewish extremist by the name of Saul. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked, for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So this is the third time that Luke, the author, mentions Saul. And in each time, Saul is presented as a bitter opponent of Christianity. Saul was on a mission to destroy the early Christian church, this dangerous movement of people who somehow believed that Jesus, the failed messianic fraud who was publicly crucified, had risen from the dead, proven himself to be the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. For Saul, this was a dangerous lie that a passionate and educated Jew like him just couldn't tolerate. It was the most ridiculous conspiracy theory, and people were jumping on board by the thousands. So Saul made it his mission to oppose, imprison, and kill as many Christians as he could. And Jesus goes, that's the guy I want. Verse 4 Or verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light fell from heaven and flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So here we have the first red letters after Jesus' ascension. Again, it's been about three and a half years, and now Jesus shows up with this flash of heavenly light. And what are his first words? Jesus calls Saul's name twice. Saul, Saul. And then he asks him a question. Why do you persecute me? Why are you doing this? What's going on in your head and in your heart? Don't you just love Jesus? His humaneness, his compassion, his non-anxious presence. This is not the showdown you would expect between Jesus and his most militant opposer. I love this painting of the conversion of Saul by Caravaggio. It uh, depicts this, this moment in a really brilliant way. You have Saul blinded by the light, knocked off his horse and shielding himself as if he's protecting himself from an attack. But look at Jesus up here in the corner. Jesus isn't attacking Saul. He's reaching out to him. He's reaching down like a dad picking up his little boy who got hurt. 
Jesus doesn't come to condemn Saul, but to save him. Like, this is the twist in the story that no one saw coming. I mean, look at the two other characters in the story. First, you have this guy who's like Paul's travel companion and maybe even his bodyguard. And he's got his shield up and then this giant spear pointed towards Jesus. And then you have this little angel guy who's got his arm wrapped around Jesus trying to hold him back. It's like he's going, I'm not sure this is such a good idea, Jesus. Do you know who this guy is? It's like this whole thing is a scandal of grace. In verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Notice that Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him. Jesus hasn't been around for the last three and a half years, so how could Saul be persecuting him? And the answer, of course, is the sweet salvation of our union with Christ. That Jesus has joined himself to his people to such an extent that when his church is persecuted, he is persecuted. Or whatever we do to the least of these, we do unto him. Saul had no idea who he was messing with when he was messing with Christ's church. But again, Jesus isn't there to beat him down, but to lift him up. So he tells Saul to get up, to go into the city to Tarsus, and to wait for his next instructions. So this moment right here, Jesus' appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus, I would argue is one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. This is the beginning of the global spread of Christianity, a faith that today is now shared by more than two and a half billion people. This is the moment where the world changed. In fact, if you were to keep reading in Acts chapter 9, you'd find that even Jesus himself talks about Saul this way. In verse 15, he says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Jesus keeps his promise that his gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. And the way he chooses to do that is through converting and calling the fiercest opponent of the faith. But before Jesus changes the world, first he changes Saul. Now some of you might think that this is where I'm going to say that Saul's name was changed to Paul. But do you know what? That never actually happens. Yeah, for the, most, for the most part, after this point, Luke refers to Saul by the name of Paul. But they're actually just two versions of the same name. Saul is the Hebrew version. Paul is the Roman version. And as Paul becomes a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, he chooses to go by their version of his name. Like, if I go to a Spanish-speaking country, they would call me Pedro. It's not my Christian name. It's just my name in Spanish. So Jesus doesn't actually change Saul's name, but he does change everything else about him. Paul has been described as the most thoroughly converted human 
in history. His convictions change, his conduct changes, his community changes. Jesus knocks him down and then picks him up and turns his entire life a complete 180 degrees. Saul goes from hating Jesus to loving Jesus, from destroying the church to giving his life for the church, from despising Christianity to becoming the most influential Christian who's ever lived. In fact, this story of Saul's conversion is so important that it gets told two more times in the, in the book of Acts chapter 22 and 26. So Paul's life is changed by the grace of Jesus and the world has never been the same. And like I said earlier, we sit here today as recipients of this gospel. At some point, one of those churches that Paul planted sent someone out to plant the gospel in a new part of the world. And then someone from that new church was sent out to bring the gospel to another part of the world. And eventually the gospel made its way all the way to Bend, Oregon, where a group of people named their church Antioch after the place where followers of Jesus were first called Christians. So we're recipients of this message and mission first, but then we're also invited to be participants in it. The same Jesus who converted, called, and commissioned Saul is also converting, calling, and commissioning us today to be part of his life and what he's doing in the world. We understand that the church of Jesus exists to join Christ on his mission and to advance the gospel by announcing his kingdom that has come and is coming. This is what we are all about as the church. And sometimes this is played out in the ordinary stuff of everyday life. And other times it's bigger, even much bigger. So today, I have two exciting announcements to share with you about the future of Antioch. Over the last two months, our team has been busy working on some pretty big stuff. And I can't wait to tell you about this. You ready? Two things. First, we're going to talk about church planting. A little history. Back in 2006, Foundry Church sent Ken and Tamara Weitzma to plant a new church in Bend called Antioch. At that exact same time in 2006, Jefferson Baptist Church in Jefferson, Oregon, sent Jen and I with a team of people to plant a church in Corvallis called Doxology. And that's how Ken and I first met when we were both planting churches some 14 years ago. So in both cases, there was an established church that served as a sending church, which is a model of multiplication that started in the book of Acts and has been used to start millions of churches all around the world. The sending church sees itself as a place where ministers of the gospel can be prepared and raised up and then deployed for the sake of advancing the gospel into other areas. So in the cases of both Antioch and Doxology, our sending churches 
served as sort of an incubator space for the church planter, as well as the primary, primary financial and relational support system for the initial phase of the new church. The idea is churches planting churches. So over the past several months, we've been in contact with a wonderful group of believers in North Portland who are part of a church called Red Sea. Red Sea is about 50 people who live in St. John's, which is one of the roughest neighborhoods in Portland. It's lower middle class. Its public schools rank among the worst in the entire state. It has some of the highest levels of crime and poverty in the city. And the people of Red Sea have been faithfully slugging away there since 2002. But their ministry has struggled and dwindled in recent years. So their leaders have discerned that God is calling them to a fresh start with a new pastor and a renewed vision to advance the gospel in North Portland. In the church world, this would be called revitalizing or replanting a church. It's hard work, and it requires a special kind of leader with the right support. I'm excited to announce today that this summer, we are planting a new church. And we believe that we have that kind of leader in our very own Nathan Riley. Nathan's been here with us for almost two years as our pastor of worship and formation. But he and Carrie have found themselves sensing God's calling to move to St. John's, Portland, and to replant Red Sea. Before coming to Antioch, they thrived as church planners in Albany, a similarly, similarly rough context. So Nathan's a field-tested church planter who's gone through a rigorous third-party church planter's assessment process. And our elders have agreed that his gifting, background, and passion seem to align perfectly with this unique church planting opportunity. So here's the plan. Uh, Nathan will stay on our staff for the next two months as an embedded church planter. And then in July, we'll be sending the Rileys off to Portland while Nathan, where Nathan will step into the role of lead pastor of Red Sea and he'll head up the replanting of a fresh expression of the gospel in St. John's. As a church, Antioch is committed to investing in this work in as many ways as possible, through relationships, through prayer, through finances, and even the possibility of sending people along with the Rileys to help. So, over the next few weeks, we'll be filling you in with more information on what's happening and ways to get involved, but for now, I hope that you're able to celebrate with me that the opportunity we have in front of us is a beautiful kingdom endeavor that we get to participate in. So that's the first announcement. We are planting a new church. And here's the second new announcement. We are moving to a new home. This fall, Antioch will turn 14 which means we've been gathering for worship in rented facilities for 14 years. 
from McMinimins to the Regal Theater to Summit High School to Bend High for the last eight years, we've made the most of being a tabernacle church and have celebrated that if we're going to pay rent, we're glad that we get to pay it to the public schools. But I'm excited to announce that a few weeks ago, we officially closed on the purchase of the old Grace Baptist building at 6th and Clay. Uh, as you know, we've been renting just the top floor of this building for the last couple of years as our office and community space, and it really has been a great place for our staff to work out of, as well as a place for youth groups and men's groups and women's groups to gather and that sort of thing. But several months ago, God opened the door for us to purchase the entire building, 8,500 square feet on half an acre right in the middle of Bend for an unbelievable price. And so for the first time in Antioch's history, we now have a piece of real estate to call our home. Now, it's an old building, and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of creativity, but our staff and elders think that this is the right next step for us as a church, that over the course of this summer, we're going to be renovating Six and Clay, and as soon as the world reopens, whenever that may be, our plan is to move Sunday services into this new building. Now, I'll be honest, um, it's going to be really different than what we're used to. Uh, before the COVID lockdown, we were averaging somewhere around 300 adults every Sunday, which is a great size for a church. But the auditorium at Bend High has 1,600 seats. Uh, ever since I became lead pastor two years ago, I've been wanting to get us into a size-appropriate venue. Do you remember that one Sunday a few years back when the school district shut down because of the snow, so we met at the old St. Francis Church downtown. That was one of my favorite Sundays ever. We could see each other in the daylight. We could hear each other sing. We felt like a family. And that's exactly what we're going for with our new building. The idea is that instead of one large spread out gathering in a performing arts venue, we're going to have several smaller, more intimate gatherings in a space designed for worship. And best of all, it's going to be our space, which we know from the church-wide survey we took at the beginning of the year is the number one thing most of you would change about Antioch, having our own space. And now we do. So I'm trusting that you're receiving this as good news, but if you haven't gotten the picture yet, let me give you my top eight reasons that I'm excited about this new building. Number one, I love the message that it sends to our city that this old church building is being rehabilitated, not to become another brewery or bike shop or yoga studio, but as a symbol of the life-giving fullness of the gospel of Jesus. Number two, I love that fixing up this building will enable us to establish a rooted long-term presence in this city. We want the people of Bend to know where to find us and to know that we are here for them for the long haul. 
Number three, I love that this building will allow us to expand our ministries to seven days a week. We're already dreaming about all the ways that we can use this space to practice hospitality, to build community, and to pursue justice. Number four, no more setup and teardown. It has been 14 years of pulling the trailer up at 6 a.m., unloading all the sound equipment, musical instruments, kids' ministry supplies, signs, tables, chairs, library carts, coffee makers, and on and on. It has required literally thousands of staff and volunteer hours a year to set up and to tear down every Sunday. I know some of you are going to be really bummed about that. But in the new building, we won't have to do that anymore. Number five, dedicated ministry spaces. Everything we've done on Sunday mornings for the last 14 years has had to be portable. Every kid's activity, every stage design, every information display, every piece of art, and so on. Imagine a classroom that is specifically designed to nurture and to inspire preschoolers, as opposed to a rearranged sophomore social studies classroom with sketchy decor and dirty floors. Number six, having our own building gives us creative control and predictable use of space. The Ben Lapine School District has been a great landlord, but we've often had to work around school plays and sports tournaments and proms and construction projects. Number seven, we get to continue to share the space with our two partner churches, Dios Esmore and Milal Korean Fellowship. Dios will continue to meet at 1 p.m. Uh, in our new renovated worship space, and Milal will continue to gather on site during our services as well. So we are stoked to keep building those relationships. And finally, number eight, this is a great move for our church financially. Not only are we saving a ton of money by not renting Bend High every Sunday, but we're also no longer paying rent on our office space. And on top of that, we now own a piece of real estate in the middle of the city, right on the edge of the new Bend Central District that's being developed over the next few years. It's a great place to have property. So those are just some of the reasons I'm excited about this new building. Of course, with the stay home order, we simply don't know when we're going to be able to gather in person again, and we don't know what kind of restrictions will be in place when that time comes. So it's hard for me to give you an exact timeline for all of this, but the rough plan is that we're going to spend the next two to three months fixing up the building, and hopefully we'll be able to move in sometime late summer, early fall. We may have to go back to Bend High for a, for, for a bit first, or maybe we'll meet outdoors somewhere for a couple months. Maybe we'll just gather in homes as small groups. We don't know yet, but I'm not worried about it. And we'll keep you posted as things become a bit clearer. Uh, we'll also be letting you know what we're looking at on the financial side of things, and we will be asking for you to contribute to this renovation project in a significant way. So Antioch, that is what's happening this summer. We are planting a new church, and we are moving to a new home. I can't wait until we're all together again, but in the meantime, 
we can rest in knowing that Christ's church is alive and well, and the gospel is being advanced both within us and around the world. I love you guys.